The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. Good morning. My name is Arian Aurora. I'm a senior studying math and economics, and I'm honored to introduce today's convocation speaker, Professor Francis Fukuyama. Professor Fukuyama is the Olivier Nomolini Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, the director of Stanford's Fort Dorsey Masters in International Policy, and a professor of political science at Stanford. Additionally, he is the author of more than a dozen books. His most recent work, titled Liberalism and Its Discontents, addresses challenges to liberalism from both sides of the political aisle. Professor Fukuyama has written on topics ranging from historical changes in political institutions to the factors that undermine the political stability of a nation. In one of his most notable works, The End of History and the Last Man, Professor Fukuyama argued that after the end of the Cold War, the progression of human history as a struggle between ideologies was largely at an end, with the world settling on liberal democracies. His talk today, titled The Global Challenge of 2024, will focus on the possible global outcomes that emerge in 2024, particularly in the context of two large wars. Beyond his innumerable accolades, Professor Fukuyama embodies the spirit of critical thought and engaged dialogue we seek to cultivate at Carleton, particularly through our convocations. Professor Fukuyama has, throughout his career, engaged meaningfully with the ideas from across the political spectrum, he has, in the true spirit of the liberal arts, received training in a wide set of disciplines and has interwoven them in his writings. Most notably, he's not shied away from updating his views and his arguments over time. Professor Fukuyama's enduring contributions and ability to consistently offer novel arguments that shape the way scholars think about political economy have led one of his colleagues to assert that he is, quote, one of the few enduring public intellectuals. In short, we are tremendously fortunate to have Professor Fukuyama somebody who embodies the spirit of our convocations and the spirit of Carlton's commitment to meaningful dialogue here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Professor Fukuyama to Carlton. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very nice introduction. I'm really pleased to be here uh, at Carleton. You know, my father was actually ordained as a Congregationalist minister. I don't think he ever preached, however, to quite as magnificent a, a, a chapel as this one, and so I'm very honored to be able to talk to you today uh, about uh, the year 2024 that we've just uh, entered into. So <clears throat> it's a cliche to talk about the coming year as being decisive, as being potentially one of a turning point in human history, but I'm afraid that that is probably going to be true uh, of uh, this coming year because there are a lot of decisions that will be made and a lot of event events that will unfold that could lead the world in very, very different directions uh, by the time we get to the year 2025. Just to begin with, there are going to be a lot of elections all over the world in some very important countries. Taiwan just held an election in which the 
candidate of the Democratic People's Party won. This is the one that is less friendly to China, so China takes a great interest in that outcome. But there are elections that will be occurring in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Mexico, Britain, and then probably the most important of all of them, the election in the United States that will happen uh, this coming November. I'll have a little bit more to say about that uh, a bit later in the talk. But this comes uh, against the background of two ongoing hot and very brutal uh, wars. The first one, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that next month will enter its third year. This is a war that's been extremely costly for both sides. Perhaps 300,000 Russians have been killed or wounded. We don't know the number on the Ukrainian side, but it's certainly uh, in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and it is a war that uh, has been going badly for Ukraine uh, over the past six months. Uh, it started out in a hopeful way because Ukraine was resisting uh, Russia uh, successfully. They were much more skillful in um, military operations and strategy than the Russians. But uh, the most important development has been uh, the ending of American assistance, military assistance to Ukraine. And at the moment, it's simply become a matter of the Ukrainians running out of ammunition uh, because they have not been adequately resupplied to defend themselves. Uh, and this has big implications for the broader security of Europe because this war was really never just about Ukraine. It was really about the order that had emerged, the democratic order that had emerged in Europe after 1991 and the desire of Russia to overturn it and restore something like its dominant position uh, before that uh, time. The other war, of course, is the one that is going on in Gaza. It began with this terrible terrorist attack on October 7th, but now has uh, led to uh, an incredible and, and really unbearable level of casualties among Palestinians in Gaza. What worries me particularly about this conflict is that there's no clear endpoint or outcome that would seem to guarantee any kind of ongoing stability. Uh, we have for a long time put our hopes in a two-state uh, solution where both the Israelis and Palestinians would have their own state. Uh, this hope ended really and it has been opposed uh, by this odd combination of Hamas on the one side and the Netanyahu government in Israel on the other. And so it's not clear that there is a vision that anyone has uh, for how to end the conflict in a way that uh, just minimally satisfies uh, any of the interests of either uh, of the parties involved. And there are obvious dangers of escalation, which we've already seen uh, in the attacks by the Houthis on shipping in the Red Sea, uh, followed by British and American strikes. But you can all see the possibilities for other countries being drawn into uh, an extended conflict in the Middle East. All right, so that's I think our immediate worries, but it comes against a broader background of what my colleague at Stanford, Larry Diamond, has labeled the democratic, the global democratic recession. The years between uh, 1991 and let's say the uh, financial crisis in 2008 were ones of unparalleled American hegemony in virtually all aspects of power, military, political, economic, cultural, but that has been reversed uh, really since uh, the end of the first decade of the 21st century. Freedom House, which is an organization that keeps track of global democracy, 
has noted lower levels of aggregate democracy throughout the world for 17 consecutive uh, years in its annual Democracy in the World report. This is both quantitative and qualitative, so we've had setbacks in a number of new democracies, Myanmar, uh, Tunisia, Nicaragua, uh, and the like, but also major changes in some of the world's oldest and biggest democracies, particularly uh, India uh, and the United States. You've seen the consolidation of two great powers that are not just authoritarian, but see increasing concentration of power in a single uh, individual. In the case of Russia, you may remember those pictures of Vladimir Putin at the beginning uh, of the Ukraine war, sitting at the end of a 30-foot table uh, opposite his defense minister because he was so worried about uh, getting COVID. Uh, but he is really the only decision maker uh, in that country. And those are the conditions un under which you can do things like launch a bloody, uh, hopeless war that kills a lot of your own people and weakens your own uh, power because you're not taking advice or getting information uh, from anyone else. Something similar has been going on in China. China had developed what I would call a pretty well institutionalized, though authoritarian system uh, in the first 30 years after its reform began, in which a Chinese leader could not single-handedly make a decision affecting the whole country. But since Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2013, the old institutions have deteriorated. Uh, China used to have term limits, 10 years, and the entire senior leadership would turn over. Uh, that was rescinded at the last party congress. Uh, and uh, the collective leadership that had really guided China through the first generation of its reforms has been replaced by the decisions <clears throat> of one individual. And I think in both the Russian and Chinese cases, you can see that this is a grave defect in authoritarian government because uh, no one single individual has the wisdom and the knowledge to actually make good decisions. So you get the Ukraine war, you get zero COVID, you get you know, very poor policies coming out of that kind of leadership. Now, the other big development that's occurred is the rise of populist nationalism. Uh, in many countries, uh, Turkey, India, Hungary, and the United States. So what is populism? Uh, populism has a number of common characteristics. It usually centers on <clears throat> a single individual who can be democratically uh, elected, but asserts a charismatic authority because of that election, and therefore is anti-institutional. Institutions are constraints like the rule of law, like constitutional checks and balances on the power of a single individual. That's what makes a liberal democracy liberal. And what's gone on in all of these countries is that a populist leader has taken that democratic mandate and used it in the first instance to erode those checks and balances against that leader's power. That's courts, that's the bureaucracy, that's the media, uh, all of these things that limit the power uh, of that populist leader. Moreover, there is a tendency of populists to claim that the existing structure, basically citizens have been red-pilled. That is to say, the existing media, institutions, leaders, corporations are all part of a larger conspiracy organized by shadowy elites behind the scenes to take power away from ordinary people. Uh, and therefore, 
the system as a whole needs to be uh, really destroyed in a kind of revolutionary fashion. So this is not traditional conservatism. This is something uh, far more uh, radical. Now, <clears throat> there's been a lot of discussion over the last several years about why uh, this kind of populist nationalism has arisen. I would say there are several categories of explanation. You know, the most straightforward one has to do with economics and globalization. Uh, we have gone through a period of intense uh, interaction in the global economy that's led to the outsourcing of jobs, to the uh, reduction of the opportunities of a lot of working class people in rich countries that have lost jobs and opportunities to rising uh, middle classes in, uh, in other parts of the world. So that obviously has created a degree of inequality that has bred a lot of uh, resentment. Part of globalization, however, is also cultural. It's the movement of populations across international borders. And one of the most reliable predictors of what country is going to see a rising populist party uh, uh, has to do with migration. Uh, the right-wing parties in Europe all got their start because of the Syrian civil war and the million or so Syrians that settled in uh, Europe uh, in the year 19, uh, 2014. And similarly, the southern border in the United States has been an ongoing source of backlash against the existing uh, system that has permitted uh, this kind of migration and therefore cultural change. But there's other things going on as well. Technology has played a huge role. You know, in the 1990s when the internet uh, was first made available uh, to ordinary people, we thought that this would be a big boon to democracy because information was power. Now people had access to whatever information they wanted, and in fact, that is the case. It's remarkable the amount of information you can get. The problem is the quality of that information. We are now living in a world where basically anyone can say anything they want. Uh, everyone can be their own publisher, and sure enough, that's exactly what they uh, have done. And instead of the elite institutions like the three television networks or the legacy uh, print media that used to control uh, the kind of just factual information that people got. Uh, you now have uh, many different sources, uh, a lot of them not necessarily originating in your own country that will tell you whatever you want to hear. And that uh, kind of manipulation on the one hand and the desire to consume only information that supports your prior uh, commitments uh, has led to this extremely fragmented uh, and polarized world where we don't have a single set of facts. You know, are vaccines safe? Who won the 2020 election? These are contested in a way that they really could not have been, you know, 20 or 30 years ago before you had this kind of technological uh, revolution. Uh, and then, you know, you finally have, I think, generational turnover, which has led to uh, people forgetting what uh, an alternative uh, to uh, a liberal democracy really looks like. Uh, people have had not any recent experience of severe conflict or uh, of authoritarian government, and therefore they can assert that, you know, the American administration is a tyranny, the EU is a tyranny as bad as any communist tyranny that had previously existed because they actually never experienced those alternatives uh, in their 
uh, in their own lives. And this has led to critiques of liberalism from both the right and the left, and people saying we need a post-liberal order. Liberalism is something for my generation. You baby boomers thought of yourselves as liberals, but we're beyond that now. On the right, it's because liberalism doesn't provide as strong a sense of community. You know, we're all the same ethnicity, or we all have the same religious beliefs, and that's what gives us our strength. You can't do that in a liberal society. And on the right, um, I'm sorry, on the left, you have complaints that liberalism is hypocritical. It claims to treat everybody equally, but in fact you have gross inequalities that remain uh, in every liberal democracy based on race, based on economic background, based on gender, based on any number of other characteristics. Now, I'm going to give you three reasons because I think it's important that people remember why a liberal society is better than an illiberal society. So let me just go over them, uh, let me go over them quickly. The first reason is a pragmatic one. Liberalism is a means of governing over diverse societies. Liberalism got its start in the 17th century at the end of Europe's wars of religion. After the Protestant Reformation, Europeans spent the next 150 years killing each other over whether they were Protestant or Catholic or which particular uh, sect of Protestantism they belonged to. Something like a third of the population of Central Europe got killed in the Thirty Years' War as a result of that sort of sectarian conflict. And at the end of it, liberal theorists arose and said, we should not aim at the good life, having a single uh, religious uh, uh, vision of what the good life is. We should tolerate differences of opinion and uh, create a society in which we can live peacefully and secure everybody's right to life rather than their particular uh, view of what the good life is. And that continues to be the case uh, of why liberalism is better. In India, for example, you have an extremely diverse community uh, that is diverse religiously by sect, by caste, by region, by language, uh, and you now have a populist uh, Hindu nationalist government that wants to change that country's national identity to one based on one of India's religions. And I think this is a formula that has led to violence in the past and is likely to lead to violence in the future. All right, that's the first reason. Second reason is a moral reason. Uh, liberalism protects human autonomy. The basic premise of liberalism, uh, and by the way, by liberalism, I don't mean liberalism in the American sense of left of center. I mean liberalism in the classical liberal sense uh, as it emerged you know, out of the cauldron of European politics uh, a few centuries ago. Liberals believe that all human beings, qua human beings, deserve uh, a certain minimal degree of respect uh, for their existence as free uh, and dignified people. And that this is not something that is given only to certain subgroups of people based on their race, ethnicity, religion, or other uh, characteristics. Uh, and in that respect, liberalism has a moral component. It protects uh, an individual's right to make the most fundamental choices uh, in, their, uh, in their lives. And the final uh, argument for liberal society is economic. Because property rights and the right to engage in commercial transactions is protected uh, in liberal societies. They've also tended to be the most prosperous societies in human history. 
Even China, after its reform began in 1978, was able to get rich because it implemented uh, a, a liberal economic agenda in which people were allowed to engage in market transactions and hold on to the wealth that they created by starting businesses, by running farms, uh, and so forth. And that remains the case uh, to this day that liberal economics uh, is the route to modernization uh, and prosperity. Uh, and so I think that it's something to keep in mind when people on both the right and the left say we need to supplant liberalism with some other form of um, uh, political community uh, based on, you know, rather than individual rights uh, and individual freedoms, uh, the freedoms and rights of groups of people that will now structure society. And that is a formula, I think, if you look at other countries that have proceeded down that road, and there are a lot of them, you know, places like Libya, Iraq, Lebanon, Bosnia, uh, that is not a comfortable way to uh, organize a society and to, and in particular to uh, organize a democracy. Um, so that's why we need to hold on to the principles of liberalism and, uh, and remember why liberal societies emerged after the two world wars uh, and after communism uh, because people saw very vividly in their own lives what those alternatives looked like and they were not very pretty. Now, I have to talk about the United States because among the things that is going to happen in 2024 is the American election. And I think that by far that is going to be one of the most consequential decisions that will be uh, taken because of the role that the United States has played in maintaining our so-called liberal international order uh, and in being a model for other countries to, uh, to emulate. Uh, and I think that uh, that's why the choice that is in front of Americans will be particularly important. Now, I have to explain a little bit. Uh, as a Stanford professor, we are not encouraged to take partisan positions in public fora, and I don't intend to do this in any kind of a partisan uh, spirit. And I think for a convocation, you know, at Carleton, that's also not a, kind of an appropriate way to talk to you. But uh, I do think that it's important to talk a little bit about the stakes in the coming election. Now, in normal democratic politics, you have contestation between political parties over policy issues. Should taxes be higher or lower? Should there be more or less regulation? Uh, what about foreign policy? Should we have intervened or not? Uh, these are the kinds of things that people in a democracy can have disagreements about and arguments and deliberation, and hopefully there will be a deliberative democratic process that will lead to uh, a decision by that community to you know, elect one party or the other. Uh, I'm afraid that in the coming election, the stakes are going to be a lot higher than simply our taxes going to be higher or lower uh, in the future, although those, you know, those are uh, issues at stake. Uh, and that has to do with, I think, the threats to the liberal part of American liberal democracy that have emerged. One of the two political parties, you get about 30% of uh, total voters and a majority of that party believing, for example, that the 
2020 election was stolen, and that our current president is there as a result of massive uh, voter fraud, something that is not true, and yet uh, you have you know, political partisans that are trying to deliberately undermine confidence in the fairness of the American uh, legal system and the American electoral system, and you cannot have a successful democracy proceed under those kinds of conditions where that number of people fundamentally think that their system is illegitimate and indeed uh, think that the greater threat to their way of life is posed by their domestic opponents than by any authoritarian uh, foreign power. Uh, and this is the kind of issue I think that is going to be raised in uh, the coming American election. I make no predictions about how that's going to turn out. Your view is as good as mine. But it will be hugely consequential, and it will be consequential in foreign policy terms, because among the major choices that are going to be made will have to do with America's overall position in international affairs. Uh, the Republican Party had been isolationist up until Pearl Harbor. It went through a major conversion in the late 1940s where it accepted a major American role in uh, supporting a liberal international order. Uh, and that posture has now reverted back to the earlier isolationism. And that is going to have huge consequences uh, for NATO if the United States refuses to support its NATO allies or even withdraws from the alliance. It will have big consequences in East Asia where we have major alliance relationships with Japan uh, and South Korea. And in general, uh, that shift, that major shift in foreign policy uh, is going to have destabilizing consequences for world order in addition to the economic consequences of moving towards a more uh, protectionist set of economic policies. So uh, it's important what goes on here, and that will be one of the big decisions that will be taken in 2024. There are some uh, reasons for hope. We've had elections in Poland, in Brazil, uh, that have actually pushed back against this kind of populist nationalism, and so it's not a uniformly bleak posture. Okay, so that's the end of that sermon. Um, I want to close on a more positive note and talk to you a little bit about the requirements of citizenship and civic engagement for you as uh, students going to uh, a college like, uh, like Carleton. There are two different understandings of what it means to live in a liberal democracy, especially the liberal part. So there's one that you might call the economic libertarian view, that everybody has their own individual interests and what matters is maximizing their freedom to pursue those individual interests. And in that scheme, we want the government just to stay out of our lives and minimize uh, the impact of, of the state on our individual uh, choices. Uh, and freedom under that uh, understanding is a purely individual matter. There's an older tradition that is sometimes labeled a Republican tradition, not Republican in the partisan, contemporary partisan sense, but Republican as in the sense of the Roman Republic or the republics uh, of ancient uh, Greece uh, in which there's an emphasis on the collective exercise of freedom. That is to say, no individual can be free if he or she is not part of a collective effort at self-government. That that is the true meaning of 
of freedom is participation in a collective freedom by which a community makes decisions and enacts them uh, as a result of deliberation and, um, uh, and communal choice. This is an understanding of freedom, for example, that Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, among others, felt very strongly, that you become free by, uh, by participating, uh, by taking an active interest in public affairs. And between these two views, I am clearly in favor of the latter view. I think that we should not regard our liberal society just as an opportunity to get rich and make money uh, and just care about our families and that's it. I think that uh, concern with public affairs and civic engagement is absolutely critical to the proper functioning of a liberal democracy. So what does that uh, mean for you as students uh, to be actual participants and civically Engaged. Now, there's a certain minimal level of engagement. You need to obey the law. You need to pay your taxes. You need to um, uh, vote, you know, in regular elections. But I actually think that true engagement requires something more than those kinds of minimal uh, activities. Uh, and that really has to do with an attitude towards public affairs that is much more uh, active than, than that kind of uh, simple minimum. Uh, the first thing you need to do is you need to pay attention to public affairs. You cannot vote if you are not aware of what is going on uh, in your society, what you know, the different choices are, and so you need to pay attention uh, so that you can make uh, informed choices yourself. But beyond that, I think that there is a commitment to public service that is also absolutely necessary if a democracy is going to succeed. And one of the unfortunate things I think that's happened in the United States is that many people, and this includes a lot of my students uh, over the years, have turned away from any kind of ideal of public service. Paul Volcker, the former chairman of the Fed that dealt with our big bout of inflation in the 1970s, actually his main interest was not in uh, central banking, it was in uh, public service because he was deeply concerned that the ethic of public service had deteriorated uh, in the United States. He uh, formed an organization called the Volcker Alliance that I'm still a member of whose board I'm still a member that is dedicated to promoting uh, the ideal of public service uh, because it has been, you know, in a sense uh, affected by the hostility and distrust of government that has become endemic on both the right and the left over the past couple of generations. If people believe that the government is basically a hostile entity that is opposed to their interests as citizens that is conspiring against them, then obviously nobody is going to go into public service. And this is, a, I think, a poisonous attitude that has led people that normally, students like you, that normally would want to step up to service uh, to turn away, to go to you know, an NGO or an international organization, anything but actually taking responsibility for the self-government uh, in uh, a democracy like that of the United States. Uh, so I hope that as you go forward in your lives, you're not going to take that attitude, that you will remain aware, engaged, informed, uh, willing to uh, 
to engage with your fellow citizens in determining collectively what should be the proper policies uh, and uh, institutions that should regulate our common life together in this liberal democracy called the United States. So with that, uh, I want to thank you for your attention, and I look forward to any uh, questions or comments that you may have. Thank you. And I see, thank, first off, thank you very, very much, Professor Fukuyama, for being here. And uh, thank you for your questions. I, I see the hands are already popping up. Just a couple of uh, things to say. Next week, we will have Ben Rains. Ben Rains is an environmental journalist, filmmaker, and adventurer. He is also the author of the book, The Last Slave Ship. As for the post-convo luncheon with Professor Fukuyama, we were full up until about a second ago, and I had one cancellation. So if you haven't RSVP'd, there's room for one. And probably okay. putting myself in danger saying this, please no stampeding, but talk to me afterwards. One more. That's it. Otherwise, we are full up. Okay. Let's get to the Q&A. I think the very first hand I saw was right here. The other thing that uh, Alexei de Tocqueville spoke about was the engagement on the local level of uh, voluntary organizations. And since the 1960s, all things like Lions Club, Kiwanis, churches, synagogues, whatever, all of these things have been shrinking and so people have become more privatized and less focused on a community, you know, bowling alone, uh, amusing ourselves to death. Uh, it's, it, it's even worse now with technology. So uh, I would like to see that reverse, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but yeah. Tocqueville, I mean, I've heard him twice, and every time, this is, this is where we have to be, what we need. Uh, so a couple of comments about that. Tocqueville did think that voluntary organizations were really important, what we call civil society, but he saw them as important as schools for democratic participation, and he hoped that people would do more than simply go to their churches and rotary clubs and so forth and you know, participate more actively in the political system itself. Now, I was a big participant in the Bowling Alone debate that Robert Putnam started in the 1990s. And I would say that empirically, it's a little bit hard to know whether he was right or not. Uh, and the, the problem was he published that book right at the moment that the internet took off. And I think a lot of engagement then shifted from in-person engagement in your Rotary Clubs and Lions Clubs and so forth to online engagement. There's obviously a ton of that right now, but whether that is good or bad for democracy is really unclear because a lot of it you know, has bred this kind of toxic uh, you know, filter bubbles and closed communities that have encouraged extremism rather than encouraging any kind of, um, you know, real democratic deliberation and uh, engagement. So there's clearly something happening in that space, uh, but I think what we actually need is, in a way, less fragmentation and more institutions that are integrated so that people are actually forced to confront people that they disagree with and, you know, work out their differences. Hello, thank you for a wonderful and insightful talk. Um, I noticed you talked about the harms and misinformation associated with social media, and it makes me kind of sad that, like, as these have challenged liberal democracy, I think we've forgotten some of the promise of social media. 
but I have seen it recently with, like, I think especially the ability to, like, the generational divide over the war in Gaza, right? Like, people in my generation can hop on Instagram and see someone get their apartment building blown up. And I can go watch YouTube video essays about people playing, like, my peers and the games they like to play in China or someone doing TikTok dances on the front in Ukraine. And I guess I was wondering if you have hope for, like, <laughs> that kind of global consciousness and if that can bolster liberalism and our liberal world, world order. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's a really difficult problem. Uh, I think that, you know, at Stanford, we created a cyber policy center to precisely look at issues like content moderation. Um, so, for example, the existing big uh, platforms, you know, Meta, uh, uh, Alphabet, Google, uh, TikTok, so forth, they do a lot of content moderation. There's so much garbage on the internet that if you didn't get rid of all the violence, the pornography, you know, just really disgusting stuff that's there, nobody would want to go online. And so that's a necessary function. The problem is when you get into issues of freedom of speech and political speech. And I think the particular challenge that technology poses for our democracy is actually one of scale. So it's true that the internet permits more voices and a greater diversity of voices than ever before, but these large platforms have a unique ability either to amplify certain voices over others or to suppress them. Uh, and that creates a big normative problem for democracy because you don't want a large private for-profit company to be making complicated political decisions about what is acceptable speech in a liberal democracy. Their fundamental interest is not in the health of the democracy, it's in their own bottom lines. And in the past, that's led to the deliberate encouragement of viral information that is of low quality, some of it outright uh, false. And therefore, there's been a lot of pressure that began after you know the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, to have these platforms do more active filtering of what was regarded as misinformation or disinformation. Uh, the trouble is that conservatives woke up to this and said, hey, you know, that information about the dangers of vaccines that you just took down is actually legitimate. And, you know, we ought to be able to see it. And who are you to be, you know, censoring that kind of, uh, that kind of information? And so now we're back to where we were, where the platforms have become, you know, kind of leery of, um, uh, making those sorts of uh, decisions and you know essentially there's no really good solution uh, at hand uh, you don't want the government to be the one to decide what's good information what's bad information but I don't think you also want a very wealthy um, private company to make that sort of decision uh, I ha ran a working group on platform scale at Stanford uh, in 2020, where we were looking at this issue, and the only solution that we could come up with uh, was something we called middleware, where the platforms would be required to outsource their content moderation decisions to third-party providers that could be chosen by individual users of the internet. Uh, and I think that solves the problem by creating competition, so you don't have a single point of decision where you say this is permitted and this is not. People can make their own decisions about what they see. We, we 
haven't gotten there because we don't have a business model that would support this sort of thing. I would say, in general, it is a good thing if these big platforms are displaced by other competitors because since you don't want a single point of decision-making making these decisions, it's probably better to have competition. And so if Twitter gets displaced by Threads or Mastodon or Blue Sky or something else, I think that's all to the good. Uh, I think that people ought to have a variety of, of places that they can go on the internet to interact. But in the end, you still have these economies of scale that give advantage to large networks. And unfortunately, we don't really have a good way of dealing with that, you know, that problem of their, of their political power. How has social media aided democratic backsliding? Well, I mean, it's, it's promoted backsliding in this obvious way that uh, it is much easier, you know, in a 280-character tweet to say something that's shocking and extreme. And if your main criteria for success is the number of likes and the number of retweets, then that's going to privilege content that is not thoughtful, that is, you know, like TLDR too long did not read. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to post that kind of content, but honestly, that's the kind of content you need if you're actually going to seriously engage with any set of ideas. And that gets back to this you know, problem about Gaza that you see a picture and you immediately react to it, and it encourages you know, less thoughtful uh, interaction. And I think that's really what's been the challenge of social media, that uh, you can publicly take postures that your friends will see and get that kind of social approbation without having to do the hard slog of actually reading, informing yourself, deliberating, thinking carefully about you know, what ought to be the, the proper attitude to take. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a borderline pacifist, but I do um, believe that the dropping of the draft requirement um, has really contributed to our country's polarization. I think that when everybody was required, when every male was required to serve, they were thrown together with people who were drastically different from themselves. And um, would it not serve the cause of, of bringing people to more civic engagement and public service if the government required two years of national service. Um, and it wouldn't, I don't mean just military service, that could be one way, but people could work on infrastructure projects. They could work in schools in, um, in really uh, underserved communities. There would be so many ways to do it. But if that is a good idea, what are the odds of finding politicians who would actually sponsor such legislation? Yeah, well, that's music to my ears. I'm all in favor of uh, national service. Uh, I think that actually, just in terms of military service, the draft was a good thing because it forced everybody into the military and you wouldn't get into as many wars, I suspect, if your own child you know, was likely to get killed in, in that conflict. You think twice about uh, intervening somewhere where that really wasn't 
uh, a core national uh, interest. So just in terms of foreign policy, that's probably a good thing. I think the military was one of the greatest avenues for upward social mobility for African Americans, for Hispanics, for recent immigrants. And so it, as a, as a mobility uh, institution, I think it's very good. Uh, I think that you're not going to return to universal military service anytime soon, but the idea of national service is a, is a very positive one. But that's kind of the problem we've got right now is people don't believe in national service. They say, why should I give up you know, two years of my life you know, to a government I don't trust? And you know, what are they going to be doing with my time? And how am I going to be manipulated? Um, I don't owe that to my fellow citizens. And that's why I think you've got to have a, a kind of change in the, in the overall culture such that uh, public service regains its dignity uh, that it is something that young people uh, aspire to and want to do, and then the government can, you know, I suspect that you couldn't make it mandatory in this country, but you could certainly, you know, that was the idea behind AmeriCorps, was to give people the opportunity to volunteer, but you could expand that and do it at a much larger scale, and I do think that that would be a very uh, positive thing to restore, you know, the dignity of, of service um, for a new generation of Americans. Uh, yeah, so hello. You, you uh, talked a little bit about uh, China's development in the last like 30, 50 years. Um, and obviously they've done this with a kind of state-run capitalism. But capitalism like, has, has to be the backbone of liberal democracy. So how can we reconcile that it can uh, you know, be the uh, driver of uh, some of America's biggest threats uh, but also uh, absolutely essential to it continuing to be a, a liberal democracy. Well, look, capitalism is not the problem. Uh, you can't have a modern society without a market economy, without property rights, without you know, the freedom to buy and sell, uh, and that sort of thing. The problem is that uh, if you just have markets and economic freedom uh, without it being coupled to democratic politics, then it tends to breed a high degree of inequality. And that means that the really successful formula uh, in the period after the Second World War was some form of social democracy in which you have a fundamentally market economy that produces jobs and prosperity, but it also is coupled to a redistribution of state that provides basic services like healthcare, pensions, uh, and unemployment insurance, this sort of thing. Uh, and it gets more buy-in into the system because you know, it covers people that are the losers in the market competition. Now, in this whole period, the so-called neoliberal period in the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of countries moved away from that, that model of you know, social protection. Uh, a lot of them had to do it because those systems were too generous uh, and, you know, there isn't a pension system in the world that is actually sustainable at, at the current moment because too many promises for, you know, how the state would, would, would secure uh, your future were made that really couldn't be uh, acted on. And so, you know, we need to correct those kinds of issues. But I think that if you do not have social policy that uh, corrects a lot of the inequalities created by a market economy, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. 
paradoxically, that's a big problem in China right now because they actually don't have an adequate set of social protections to deal with you know, the aging of the population, to deal with a lot of educational and, and other kinds of social services that uh, are needed there. Uh, and in their case, I think a lot of the interventions in recent years have actually been unhelpful because they've just been piling on investment in you know, real estate and housing that's kind of at the root of their current stagnation. So uh, yeah, you have to have state intervention, you have to have social protection, but it has to be sustainable and it has to be well-targeted. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I know at the end you talked a little bit about public service, uh, and I was wondering how you think the role of public service might shift um, if states, like particularly post-colonial states, might have their like state apparatus or bureaucracy inherited rather than it being formed on their own. Well, uh, it's hard to generalize about that. Um, you know, the British Indian Civil Service uh, became the basis for the uh, Indian Administrative Service that exists to the present moment and the Pakistani uh, Administrative Service. And these are among the more elite and effective institutions in those countries. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, another institution they inherited from colonial days was their army. And unfortunately, in that case, it was a little bit too effective. And so they've ended up you know, running Pakistan for quite a few years ever since it became an independent country. But I think that uh, actually, uh, although in the decolonization literature, it's not particularly um, popular to say this, there were certain colonial institutions that actually were quite effective and, you know, I mean, every country needs an effective merit-based bureaucracy. And in you know, cases like Hong Kong or, you know, Malaysia or Singapore, where that was the legacy of British colonialism, uh, it was actually a pretty good, uh, it was a pretty good uh, inheritance. So the picture is mixed, you know, obviously the irrational borders in many developing countries or in the Middle East or in Sub-Saharan Africa were all the products of, you know, a colonial legacy that is distinctly not helpful because those borders were meant to satisfy you know, the interests of the colonists. A lot of the extractive industries that got started in those countries were meant for the benefit of the colonialists and their survival is also you know, not very helpful in the present moment. So I think you have to distinguish between different kinds of institutions to you know, come to a fair judgment of you know, what that legacy has meant in the, in the present. Hi, thank you so much for being here today. Um, so you talked about the um, moral component and the initial development of classic liberalism, and you mentioned how as students and um, like how our duty is to be more aware and to like contribute to public service, and there's the ethical component to that. How do you think um, discrepancies in moral values contributed to the development of liberal democracy in the East and the West? Uh, I don't quite understand what you mean by discrepancies in moral values. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, like, how did you, how do you think, um, like, values as a national identity um, contributed to how liberal democracy developed in the East versus the West? Uh, and the East meaning what, East Asia? 
Um, oh. Like China. China, okay. Well, that's a, that's a subject I've written a lot about. Um, so one of the big advantages that the countries in Northeast Asia, meaning China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, had over other parts of the developing world was the fact that they all had a coherent modern state in their pre-modern period, before there was any confrontation with Western uh, colonialism. Uh, as I've argued in my political order books, China was the first civilization to develop a modern state. And that happened you know, in 221 BC with the Qin unification. Uh, and so you know, having a modern state was not something they had to struggle over. And frankly, having a national identity was also something that they didn't struggle over because they actually, those centralized states had created, um, you know, especially in the case of Japan and, and Korea, a pretty homo ethnically homogeneous uh, society. And so they didn't have any of the struggles that countries in the contemporary Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa have where they're just a patchwork of different ethnic groups and different religious sects that don't feel they have much in common. I mean, that's just not a problem that those countries in that part of Asia have had to struggle with. Now, when you get to Southeast Asia, it's a different story because there you've got incredible religious and, um, uh, and ethnic uh, diversity in Myanmar, in you know, Thailand, in the Philippines, and so forth. Uh, and there they've had you know, greater problems because they didn't have strong national identities. And very few of those countries really had a strong state when they became uh, independent uh, sovereign entities. Nonetheless, I think that the Chinese inheritance, you know, the, the thing that is absolutely central to Chinese culture uh, is the idea of bureaucracy. Uh, that you need a centralized state and the state ought to be run by well-educated people. And that is something that, you know, really all of the states in East Asia have inherited and that didn't exist in Latin America, it didn't exist in, uh, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, it didn't exist in large parts of South Asia, but it did exist in the kind of Chinese cultural sphere of influence and I think that's one of the reasons that they've done well uh, economically over the last, you know, 70 years. Back in the day of, uh, of the original James Bond movies, the villains tended to be extremely rich individual citizens. And today, the richest, arguably, arguably the richest man in the world has not only his own <laughs> media platform, but also his own a fleet of rockets that could be easily used for intercontinental ballistic missiles. <laughs> How do we control that? Uh, you know, the, the, the tools for controlling that are present, you know. Uh, we've had antitrust laws on the books for more than a century. And, uh, you know, there's, there's reasons why we haven't exercised those kinds of powers. Uh, really one of the consequences of the rise of the Chicago School in the 1980s and 90s was a belief that antitrust was being misused and that companies were getting very large uh, and rich because they were efficient and that was a good thing and therefore we should lay off enforcement of antitrust actions. Now, 
that's been reversed a little bit in the Biden administration. Um, but, uh, you know, you have a whole two generations of uh, judges and, and a federal judiciary that is very sympathetic still to those University of Chicago type arguments against antitrust. And that's why I think, you know, Lena Khan and the FTC has been having trouble, you know, uh, making headway with that. The other thing you can do to control oligarchs is to tax them, you know? Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things in the American tax code that are just crazy, like the carried interest provision that allows hedge fund managers and private equity people to be taxed at a 15% tax rate, whereas everybody else is paying, you know, close to 40%. I mean, why is that still there? That's a, an artifact, I think, of the way that powerful interest groups have, um, you know, have captured parts of Congress and the U.S. government, and that's why we don't get legislative action on, uh, you know, things like that. And plus which, I mean, you still have this old uh, notion that, you know, this kind of anti-tax ideology that says that basically any tax is, you know, is a bad thing and an obstacle to growth. But that's part of the political economy of the United States right now where, you know, uh, wealthy individuals, corporations can entrench themselves because they're able to use that wealth and power to essentially manipulate the political system. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the components of political decay in this country and it way predates, you know, the rise of recent populism, unfortunately. I think we have time for one last question. So uh, you wrote the, the end of history like 30 years ago. Uh, my question is, since then, has your conception of what exactly the liberal democratic end of history state looks like changed? Yes. Um, so I think that the two volume set that I wrote on political order was really my effort to rewrite the end of history based on things that I came to understand, you know, later in life. Uh, and one of them is the importance of having a coherent modern state. I didn't appreciate that uh, at the time that I uh, wrote the end of history. I think it's actually harder to create a modern state than it is to create a democracy. You know, one that is not corrupt, that is impersonal, that is capable of delivering services effectively and efficiently. That's something that's quite hard and, and very few countries have achieved it. Uh, I think another thing I didn't really count on is uh, political decay. I didn't have a concept of political decay when I wrote The End of History, that a developed democracy like that of the United States could actually go backwards. Uh, and I think we've gone backwards in ways that have been startling and very upsetting uh, over the past you know, couple of uh, decades. So those, I say, were the major emendations that I have made based on you know, my experience of events uh, since I wrote that book. And you have to remember, I was only like 35 when I wrote that book, so a lot of stuff has happened uh, subsequently. And on that note, we must conclude today's convocation. Thank you very, very much, Professor Fukuyama. Thank you all for being here.